Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started, just want to cue you in on a big announcement we just made. My next book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, A Strong Town's Approach to Transportation, is available now for pre-order. You can go get it wherever books are sold, including and especially at your local bookstore. We made sure that the book would be available at all local bookstores. So if you go to your local bookstore and ask them for Confessions of a Recovering Engineer by me, uh, they should be able to get it for you. If you are interested in knowing more about the book, uh, we set up a website. You can actually go to www.confessions.engineer and uh, learn more. There's more information. Get signed up because we are putting together a book tour right now. In fact, we got a, like 65 signups already. So we are in, we, we are like, you know, putting names on paper and putting pins and maps. Uh, so if you want to be part of the book tour, you want to be part of this event, you, you just want to be notified of what's coming next. Uh, we've got all kinds of stuff planned for the summer on this, building up to the September 8th release of this book. So check it out. Confessions.engineer is the website. And uh, you're going to love this podcast. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. If you read my book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, you saw me quoting numerous times uh, Justin Hollander and Ann Sussman. They wrote a book called Cognitive Architecture, Designing for How We Respond to the Built Environment. I chatted with Ann before, I think it was a couple of years ago on the podcast, and that was our most listened to, most requested podcast ever. And they have now put together a book. Uh, they have edited it with a lot of other very brilliant minds. The book is called Urban Experience and Design. I have kept in touch with them, and I asked them if they would come back on the podcast. L let me do an introduction. Justin Hollander is a professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning and director of the CAGS, which I'm sorry, I don't know what that stands for, in Urban Justice and Sustainability at Tufts University. Justin uh, you've never been on the podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure it's, to be here. It's wonderful to chat with you. And Anne Sussman is a registered architect, researcher, and college instructor. And welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. It's delightful to see you. Uh, it, it's the best. <laughs> well, we have been having a very nice time, and I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you even more since the last time we spoke. And I want to start with you because there was one line in an essay that the two of you co-wrote in, in the book that I found myself thinking about over and over again. And it's very simple, and it was kind of a throwaway thing, so it might not have struck you. But there was this line that, you know, humans are remarkable as a species, and it's one of those things that we, we might just say, like humans are remarkable, well, yeah, you know, kids are great, you know, old people are great, but we're truly like remarkable in so many ways that people don't really fully grasp or appreciate. Can, can we just start with this idea and that humans are remarkable? What, what, is that, what does that mean to you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you always know how to start this. <laughs> Chuck, you just know how to begin. You are remarkable. We are remarkable. And I think we're 
the new science of human perception is showing how remarkable we really are. And I think that's what kind of drove Justin and I to do a conference in 2019 and to do a book and then to found the nonprofit we founded, the Human Architecture and Planning Institute. It's that our unconscious brains are actually guiding us more than we realize. And that's really remarkable too, how consciousness is part of the human brain, but like a tiny part. <laughs> and that the brain, um, which Nobel Prize winners, um, the Mosers call the most sophisticated surveillance system on the planet, is really guiding you subliminally more than you realize. And now we have tech tools to show that and we can see how remarkable we are, how mother nature trusts us. She lets us have consciousness, but she's gonna have unconscious things of really guide us more than we realize. Otherwise we would get run over on the street. We wouldn't jump in fast enough. We wouldn't understand what we're looking at fast enough. I'm not sure that's a good answer, but <laughs> I tried. Justin, anything? Yeah, well, I, I guess one of the things that I think about is how so many ways that, that we engage with the world around us has to do with this exceptional quality of humanness that I have a, a group of students I'm working with right now, and they are, are doing a study looking at um, open space access trails. And they wrote this whole report, like 200 page report. And they're like, okay, we're done. It's like, you're not done because they didn't write it for people. And, and when I, like, I read your work, Chuck, I mean, like, you understand that, that people are very special and that they're looking for certain ways to connect on a social basis. So we're not robots. <laughs> and and we, we, we need to be engaged and talked to and, and we need to have writing that, that, that talks to that, that human experience. And um, and so, so Anne and I are really trying to do that in terms of uh, the built environment. So it, it feels like there is this struggle, and and let me follow up on that with you, Justin. It it feels like there is this struggle that really comes out of the the twentieth century mentality of wanting to view humans as somehow fixable machines. I'm going to go back to like the ancients, and I I, I feel like the ancients. I'm doing this podcast this year called the Bible in a Year podcast. I've never read the entire Bible, but it's being read to me in 15 to 20 minute increments every day. And I've gotten this whole bunch of this Old Testament stuff. And I think the fascinating thing to me about the Old Testament is just how these human stories repeat over and over again and how we fail in the same ways and how we're like, we're, we're, we're good and noble in the same ways and we're bad and, and, and uh, broken in the same ways. There's something about the ancient mind that seemed to understand that humans were these complex, fickle creatures that modernity, or let's just say that the 20th century mind kind of looked at like humans are machines that we can fine tune and fix. What, what is that mindset and, and kind of how is that shaped maybe how we have built cities or how we've, we've, we've approached some of these problems that you all struggle with? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you kind of look at the, the birth of the Industrial Revolution and how towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, things just changed so drastically. And I write about World War I in our book, and I mean, they called it the Great War for a reason. I mean, it was so tragic at such a scale, unheard of in human history. And so all these things really shook 
humanity to a core. And, 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 and it's not really a surprise that some of the kind of new ideas that, that emerged during that period really tried to try to erase history and tried to say, we've got a, we've got a kind of a new way of thinking of, of, of people, as you say, as, as more like machines, uh, cities as a machine. And it's, it was just, it was wrong. Um, and, 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 and so that's okay. <laughs> so we have to just be able to uh, come to terms with that. That was, that was an error that they were too just swept up in the, the change in society, too swept up with the trauma of war. And they, and they made a mistake um, because today we do understand, and this is really Anne references, that the, the science is just so compelling that we are primarily experiencing the world around us on an unconscious basis. And that, that our conscious awareness is, is something like 5% of the, the, the total brain activity that's happening. So, so we're going around our lives and primarily as, as in terms of interacting with the world in an unconscious way. So to design us for that machine, to design us as if we're, we're a robot and we just go through a series of steps, um, it's, a, it's a huge mistake. And Justin said it very well. It's a, it's a huge mistake. And I think what happened too, in a way, I see the Industrial Revolution, the amazing war gave us incredible technologies. War really gave us our world, right? And we were just, we were like kids in a candy store with all these new toys, cars, guns, planes, imagine. And we didn't realize that, wait a minute, designing a city without, it wasn't evidence-based. Modernism started as non-evidence-based design. Whereas for the previous 4,000 years, cities and towns and castles were evidence-based. You know, they based it on what worked before. Gropius would say at Harvard, a World War I vet, that's what he was, we're gonna start from zero. Turns out a hundred years later, you've learned you can't do that. That's not how nature works. Let me ask you right off the top here, I think one of the challenging questions that, that people will have as they listen to us discuss this, and that is that somehow acknowledging that we experience 95% of our experiences are subconscious, that, that we're kind of run as this biological automatic being, that somehow that excuses the vice that, uh, that comes out of that. And however you would define that, I think you know, we're such a politicized world, the conservative right would define vice differently than the progressive left would define vice. But this idea that somehow we're this experiential being that, that, that uh, interacts with the world around us in ways that we're not always in control of even, somehow uh, gives license to the worst of our behaviors. I, I, how, would you, how would you address that? And maybe I'll start with Anne. How, how would you address that right off the top? I mean, is that a, when people bring that up to you, what would you say? Chuck, you have me. I mean, I think that there may be truth to what you're saying, but it doesn't matter because the role of the architecture and planner is to promote well-being. Mm -hmm. We need to promote well-being and we can't promote well-being when we do it with people who are traumatized or are devastated. We have to understand that this is the amazing thing about nature she's preset things more than you realize. Before you're born, Chuck, she's more importantly set the range for your heart rate. She's set the range for your breathing. And she's set basically what you need to see to feel joy. That's kind of preset, believe it or not. And when we deviate from that, like we did, there's gonna be stress to the system. And, 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 and you have to acknowledge the built design of nature because we are of it. That's basically it. 
I mean, um, I'll just add one, one quick thing. There's a tremendous irony here that these, we've got these incredible technologies and what do they really show us? How animal we are. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's like totally amazing. We're in this yeah. new age of biology and what does it really show us? My gosh, we're not the sophisticated thinkers. And also what it does in a way is erode Cartesian thinking that the liberal arts in the 20th century were just steeped in the idea, I think, therefore I am, uh, not so true. <laughs> it elevated rationality. That doesn't quite, that's not how it works. It's Chuck sees me, therefore I am. I feel good when I look at my mother, therefore I am. I stop at the color red. I mean, there's, that's not quite how it works. <laughs> you see the, the hole in the thinking in Western rationalism. It actually, and I, I feel like this part of, of your work and also, uh, the work of like Daniel Kahneman, which is is utterly fascinating. If people have not read Thinking Fast and Slow, they really don't understand themselves. And, and I've summarized Thinking Fast and Slow for people as saying, you're a really smart chimpanzee who's on autopilot most of the time. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and I, I feel like once you once you accept that, it's not a degrading thing. It's actually a beautiful thing because humans have been able to do astounding, amazing things, despite, in a sense, our stone age or our ancient wiring. Can we talk a little bit about some of those amazing things? You talk in, in your essay in particular about how humans uh, require intimate contact with our ecosystem. The, the human habitat, the places we live. Why is it? And kind of walk me through, maybe I'll start with you, Justin. Walk me through why humans might uh, design their, their ecosystem, their habitat in certain ways based on this kind of awareness or understanding that like th this is actually a place where we're going to live, where we're going to reside. What, why would ancient humans or, or even modern humans, if they grasp this, uh, want to build their places in specific ways that interact with that biology? Right. Well, I mean, I, th I think that the current research suggests that it has to do with the fact that humans evolved in the African savanna. And in this location, there were certain primal vistas that they could see really far away. There were certain types of vegetation and, and that that is something that generation after generation evolved to continue to seek out and want to be part of. Um, I mean, we... We are part of the earth and we are part of uh, nature and we want to connect with it. It's, um, it's, it's embedded in our genes. It feels a little bit like, you know, when we take the, uh, the, the black bear out of its habitat and throw it in a cage with <laughs> concrete walls and, you know, a little tray to drink out of. And the bear becomes neurotic and depressed <laughs> and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't, we, we've kind of grown to understand this now with like the, uh, what are the, the, the big whale that they have at SeaWorld that has become the controversy? Mm. You, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, we've recognized that these are species that roam over many, very, very long distances and keeping them entrapped in these relatively small pools and cages has caused them to have very like antisocial behaviors and very uh, kind of neurotic outcroppings and, and failed to develop and failed to thrive. I think that, you know, when we look at our habitat and we look at ancient cities and we look at cities throughout time, we're looking at something that is 
evolved to us? And how should we think about cities, let's say cities of the past? I, I don't know how far back you would want to go, but before the modern incarnation of the big box stores and the strip malls and the franchise restaurants and the, right. the, 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 well, the big, you know, modernist buildings and all that. Well, that's such a good question, Chuck. And as you more you get into it, looking at architecture, you realize up until modernism, architecture is always, no matter where you are, in, your, in Persia, in Turkey, um, in Paris, architecture is always a reflection externally of the hidden internal predispositions that secure survival. So buildings um, are face-like, they're usually organized around a vertical axis because that's easier for us to process. We, we process a bilateral symmetry shapes like your face around a vertical axis faster. Um, they have detail around the windows because subliminally the brain needs to know where to look. Uh, you can easily find the front door. Uh, when I went to the Taj Mahal, you know, I knew exactly where to look and where to walk. Whereas in modernism, it stopped. But yeah, you have to respect the nature that made us. Traditional architecture does, modern architecture does not. Walk us through the process. This is, this is what I find, I think the most interesting is this idea that humans, you know, coming together and building places uh, would evolve basically over time, styles and patterns and approaches that would in, in a sense, interact with our biology in ways that maybe they didn't even fully grasp. Justin, you're not, you can, can you walk us through how this might happen, how this might occur and, and why I, I think scientifically we can look at this and study this and, and draw some conclusions about what these humans were actually doing? Well, I mean, there, there are definitely some mysteries. Archaeologists who kind of look back and, and try to understand what various architects or designers, you know, were thinking. I mean, there, there's, there's really scant evidence. So, you know, so much of what we do know is that the, you know, Anne, I think, articulated really nicely that, that they were expressing their internal biology and the, the, the patterns and shapes that were ingrained in their own minds. Um, but they were also continuing with the tradition and that these, the, the, these traditional practices uh, didn't come out of nowhere. They, they, they were really reflecting what people needed for their survival. Um, and, and so, so yeah, so the, that's, I mean, I think that's all we really know. I would love to be able to <laughs> give you like more detail. I don't know, Anne, <laughs> do you want to add anything? This is what happens. I think that the big difference is that now in the 21st century, we define human perception differently. So neuroscientists will now say the human brain is a social engagement system. So once you understand that more of the brain's neurons are devoted to face perception and face interpretation than anything else subliminally, then that suddenly, yeah, then you suddenly understand why all those cottages around the world, all, all the vernacular architecture looks like a face. It's you suddenly see architecture differently. So what people are doing because reality, here's the other thing that they make clear in neuroscience, reality is a construct between your eye, what it's taking in, and your internal brain architecture that's 40,000 years old. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And that brain architecture has preset what you need to see because remember it evolved without buildings. 40,000 years ago, there weren't buildings. So it's evolved to see faces. So effectively we look at a building like it could be a face without meaning in the first fractions of a second. 
And that's why walking down Old Newbury Street in Boston or walking down, you know, I, I don't speak Italian, but when I went to Siena, I was immediately at home. Makes no sense. It's because the buildings suggested they were faced like facades. There was an, a coherent kind of narrative to its construction. So someone who knew no Italian, who was a single woman at 23, could feel totally at home there. Made no sense. Made perfect sense because it fits what the brain biology wants to see. But war can disrupt that, and that's what happened. War disrupted it as long as well as profit mo making motives and, and new industries. Let, let me drill down into the face thing because I find this it, to be one of those things that people intuitively grasp, but yet kind of struggle with. So I, I was reading your book this weekend while I was at a dance competition with my two teenage daughters who do dance. And because of all the COVID things, we had to stand outside in a group and then they would let hundreds of people into this massive thing all at once. And then hundreds of people would leave and then the kids would come out and the kids would come out in a wave. So it would be like 200 kids walking out like four doors. And I have to find my kids in this. Everyone knows what I'm going to say. It was easy to do. I just picked them right out. It was not, I mean, amongst all these faces and all these people going by and talking, I didn't even have to see their full face. I just knew exactly who they were. I picked them out amongst this huge crowd. That is a biological thing that my brain, that's a gift that, that evolution has given my brain to be able to pick out my own children. Why would faces in buildings or buildings that are proportional or shaped in certain ways that, that mimic kind of uh, the proportions of a human body or of a human face. Why would this have an effect, on, a positive effect on people that is different than buildings that are shaped in different ways or ways that are, you know, let's just say not natural or not mimicked by nature. Why would one be soothing to me and the other one well, because you're, cause me distress. you're so smart, Chuck, because unfortunately, as a social species, what you learn is we're not meant to be alone. We actually need to see Chuck's face, Chuck's daughter's face, the face of your friend, Justin's face. We need to see the face to regulate our own emotional state. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there's, that's the problem. There's a limit to a social species. We actually need to see the face looking at us to feel good. And, and it's really crazy, it comes up in everything. So you go to um, a store and look for postcards of Boston. Well, what are on the postcards of Boston? Well, there are some distant views of the big skyscrapers, but up close, it's always the old buildings. People are gonna buy a postcard at a glance that look like a face. It's subliminal because we need to see each other to regulate our own emotional state. That's the limitation of a social species. I wanna ask you a, a question about marketing next. But Justin, this, this, is not, this is not like a good or a bad behavior. Like we're not, the fact that humans are uh, kind of designed in this way does not make us inherently good or inherently bad. It kind of makes us, if we were an alien race coming here to study all the biological creatures on earth, we would note something about humans and their, their socialness, right? No, no question about it, because not all animals have that. I um did a presentation about some of this research to some vet veterinarians. And, you know, they insisted that, that dogs experience mainly the, the world around them through their scent. And so a dog is not going to be looking for a face in the same way. They're going to be looking for certain types of scent. So, so yes, we are, you're definitely um, interesting species and, and, and it's, uh, it's not necessarily qualitatively, you know, better or worse than, than the dog, but um, 
you know, so much of what, you know, Anne and I have really done in our, our work together is really trying to, to, to help architects and planners and landscape architects, other designers understand if you're going to be shaping the world around you, that it's just, you got to understand that the face for a human really matters. And if you're building walls that are just like blank walls, blank facades, that it's not going to have the same uh, effect on the person who's walking by than than if the arrangement of the the facade resembles a face. It's no question. What's incredible too is how you have absolutely no control over it. That your brain, without any conscious awareness, in 0.7 of a second, it gets you to look at a face. So this impacts the design of cereal boxes. There are thousands of cereal boxes. So the Raisin Brand box, how will it get attention? It has a smiley face of a sun just below the title Raisin Brand. And then you look at all of the cereal boxes. There are thousands of them, right? Most of them will have a smiley face of a chip or something just below the text. Because it takes 60,000 times longer to read text. That might be too late to get someone's attention. So you got to put the smiley face in first. So you see what I'm saying? Yes. What's fascinating, I think, to Justin and I is how the marketers just run with evolution. They don't question it. They say, okay, they're face class, we're going to put a face on everything. This is what I wanted to get to next because I, I feel like what you are unveiling for people in the design realm is actually, let's say, common knowledge in, in other realms. And, and, and I, I'm going to go so far and you push back on this, please. But I think, um, you know, can be used for good or for evil in other, in other spheres. Let me give you the good. I think I'm going to paint myself as virtuous here at strong towns. We're trying to do this, this thing where we're trying to change the development pattern of North America. We're trying to empower local people to make decisions about their place. And part of what we do is we share messaging. Uh, We write articles, we do podcasts. When we share these things, we have learned, and we've learned this through data, through running many tests, through, you know, reading other people's work and understanding that when we share a photo and an image with a podcast or with a article, if it has a picture of a person, if that person is facing the camera, if they are smiling, if they are engaged, it gets more clicks than if you don't have a person. If you are going to show a building, if it is a, you know, kind of strange, disconcerting, you know, not like, but if it's a traditional architecture, people will look at it and like the clicks are higher. You could say, this is what the data shows. This is what the science shows. But we've run these experiments where we've said, all right, we've got the same headline, the same blurb, the same article. Let's run three different photos and see what works. And it's the one with the person. It's the one with the image. It's the one with the face. What am I picking up on here? And how is this being used by others like Coca-Cola and General Motors and other places that are, are selling us things in ways that I think us in the design fields are just blind to? Anne, you want to start with that one? Oh, yeah, and, and I know Justin will have stuff to say. Well, it's just, it is amazing. It, it's, it's stunning. First of all, when you, you really appreciate the extent of the face bias, how nature really doesn't trust you, um, she's decided what you're going to look at first. You really should run a biometric study or you can use 3M's visual attention software, 3M VAS, which you can just download very cheaply for free, actually, uh, on the web for some trial studies. But basically, the face bias is insane. And the car companies certainly know it. The advertisers all know it. What's so interesting is the competitive, I could never understand why competitive realtors, re, uh, retailers need to know it. And they have to know it. 
because otherwise they die as a company. So they ended up studying neuroscience or the fact that Apple hires PhD neuroscientists. And I just learned that in China, Huawei, the big computer company there, they hire PhD neuroscientists. This is stunning. This is absolutely stunning. They understand reality is a construct, evolution's preset what we're going to see, and okay, they're just going to run with it without telling us. I think that's what bothers me a little bit. <laughs> There's a part of our marketing internal to Strong Towns, because we spend money every month getting our message out to people who have never heard it. We, we kind of use you know online advertising to reach new audiences. And there is something a little bit, I think when, we, when I first started doing this, when we first started doing this, it's like, well, is this right to do this? Because what we recognize is that I, I can show certain ads to people and we'll get 20% through click-through rates. And, and it almost felt like baiting people, you know, like the, the internal mantra we had was, are we delivering on the promise of this this package that we're sending out so that when people click through, we can actually keep them as, you know, consumers of our content. And is that virtuous? Justin, I, I don't know if you have a reaction to all this, but it feels like there's a, there's a set of tools that uh, are very clearly used by a lot of groups, but not used by urban designers very much. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking earlier about the kind of modern built landscape um, of Western countries, which has all the, the, the big box retailers, um, drive-through fast food chains, and, you know, all of those accoutrements. And, and I think what's really critical here is that those are environments that are built for cars, that kind of automobile-oriented development is very prevalent, continues to be quite prevalent, and the car companies are using this research. They're using the neuroscience, they're using the psychology and they understand it really well. And so when we as planners are saying, oh, well, th this development pattern is not safe. We need to create uh, places that are more pedestrian oriented that promote wellness and walkability. Um, we are fighting a losing battle because uh, the car companies are using the, this, these advanced uh, neuroscience technologies and biometrics and they're, and they're winning, so. Yeah, I just wanna follow, what Justin said is so right, that we're really, you know, after with Eisenhower and everything in the high waves, we really took the wrong turn because cars just kill us. It's not just that there's 50,000 deaths and now pedestrian, I don't know if you saw this, pedestrian deaths are, are going up. It's um, 17 people a day are now killed by cars. The, the front, front ends are getting larger, they're more lethal but um, we haven't designed our roads and our communities for walking. And as a Harvard um, evolutionary biologist explains, Dan Lieberman, the male body um, is hardwired, is evolved to walk 12 miles a day. The female body evolved to walk nine miles a day. And one reason that we have 70% of the people in the US today overweight, 40% obese, we're 46th on the longevity tables for the World Health Organization. This contributes to the fact along, I think we're the lowest longevity rate of any developed country. One reason, there are many, many reasons, but one reason is we haven't designed for the bodies we have because we allowed the car companies in the United States to really have ascendance. And, and what's crazy too, is they do billions of dollars a year on advertising everything. I don't watch much TV, but I, 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 whenever I do, I see so many car ads. I see no walkability ads. 
Right. And, and no, no safe walking to school ads. Uh, know how to design a good crosswalk ad. And that's what we really actually need to see. Because the other thing, when you're in a car, a neuroscientist explained to me, um, a car is an envelope. What he means by that is it completely isolates you from the environment you evolve to be in, and you can't have a connection with the neighborhood when you zoom in a car as when you walk by and see your, your neighbor plant, planting tulips. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it yeah. disconnects you. And I would argue the car culture has increased the disconnection and disorientation. Only one of my four grandparents knew how to drive, right? Now you can't imagine that, right? And, and their lives were more, when you don't drive, your life is more contained in walking neighborhoods. I feel like there is a, there's a reason why we said earlier that the, the car companies are winning. There's a, there's a reason why they shouldn't win that goes beyond even like car crashes and, and that kind of thing that goes to, I think the heart of what your research is and what your insights are in terms of, of human happiness. You talk in the book and, and people write in the book about empathy and just about like human emotion and, and how as this social creature, we're kind of wired uh, to experience joy and experience pain and experience things uh, in, in ways that everybody listening to this is, is familiar with. Let me give a little story. I uh, have been a big fan for a long time of Disney theme parks. Uh, we do our staff retreats there and I take people there and, and, and I'll show them design things. But I, I recognized in myself as a very young, uh, I first went there when I was 13. And I remember being there thinking, this is a magical place. And, and not to elevate my 13 year old brain, but what I recognized is that people actually gave a damn what this place felt like to be in. And I remember thinking, uh, you know, as I got older and as I started to, to study cities and planning and things, that, that there was a certain level of, uh, I think, just, just base giving a damn that people had at the Disney Corporation. Obviously, they're trying to sell you a theme park. They're trying to sell you merchandise. They're trying to get you to buy food. It, it's a commercial venture. I'm not kidding myself here at all. But the MO of their commercial adventure is to create the happiest place on earth. And that's a function of parades and fireworks and, and rides. But it's really... If they did all of that in a Walmart parking lot, people would hate it. They would hate it. They've surrounded it by this environment that actually makes you feel comfortable. It actually makes you feel uh, like, a better, like a better person. I want to get into this because I, I think the, the battle with the car companies is interesting. Like should, you know, they're using these marketing techniques to like play on our psyche. It's a, we're fighting a battle with one arm behind our back. But the end result if, if both were benign is one thing, but the reality is, is like one leads to a life where we've seen growing levels of depression, suicide, neuroticism, uh, you know, anxiety. And the other, I'm not saying is devoid of that, but it, it is a very different outcome. Can you talk a little bit about the, the kind of social outcome of what a well-designed place would yield? Justin, you you want to start or Anne? Justin. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I really connected with what you just said. I even wrote down your quote. <laughs> People gave a damn what it felt to be in this place. And and I guess I look at so much of the 
kind of new development that happens. And it, it really, Jerry, really strongly feels like the, the, the architects, the developers, the local authorities, they just don't care about what it feels like to be in that place. And we have just spent this whole interview talking about how feelings matter and that, and that we are primarily feelings that that's, that's how we experience the world around us. And, and um, you know, we, we, we have an obligation as, as people involved in shaping the built environment to, to, to have that as at the forefront of our, of our goals and to be cognizant of, of, of what is the feeling that people are going to have when they're in that place. And, and, you know, there are dimensions of this that, that kind of, extend to historic preservation. Um, if you think about a place that doesn't generate any positive feelings for someone, if they basically, as soon as they get to that place, as soon as they see that building, they, they, wanna, they wanna run away. Um, I can guarantee you that when the, the, the building systems have been exhausted in 30 years and it's time to invest in completely rebuilding that building, that they won't. And that building will be demolished. It will go into a landfill. And so that's that's bad for historic preservation. That's bad for the environment. That's that's it's just wrong. Um, and, and I think we have an obligation to be building places that are going to uh, be around for, for, for generations to come and that people are going to uh, feel good about being in those places uh, to, to what you're saying. I, I think your Disney story is just great. It's just great because it really just sums up the whole thing because Disney saw what was happening in LA and that his young daughters couldn't experience a town center like he could because LA was already becoming car congested in the 50s. And what's amazing is he understand when you have a street full of cars, even if, if they're parked, you don't feel as safe. Your body won't let you. Justin and I recently did a study sensing streetscapes with colleagues at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. And we learned that just seeing a car causes arousal in the nervous system. Because again, we've got an antique nervous system. Our nervous system thinks it could be a large tiger, you know, just because of its size. You know, the fact is designing for happiness, that's what the Imagineers are hired to do. But when I took my architectural licensing exam over 20 years ago now, it was never mentioned. There's no emotional mention. It was absolutely amazing. <laughs> and if I could just um, add to that, Chuck, you know, I mean, Anne and I are not alone. Uh, there are people all over the world who are beginning to recognize reading the science and, and learning about um, how biometrics can be a really powerful way to to understand how people respond to places. And, and so you're seeing a whole new generation of architects and designers and planners who are, who are starting to kind of speak this language. Um, so this, this book that you had Anna on last time that her and I wrote in 2005, we have a second edition coming out this summer, um, which has a lot of new uh, updated information, some new research that we've done. Um, but we also have this other book you mentioned, The Urban Experience and Design, that was based on a collaboration with researchers from all over the world. Um, and, and then Anna and I also have created a new nonprofit organization, the Human Architecture Planning Institute. Um, so as a place for people who are doing this kind of work um, globally to kind of come together and, and share and, and exchange ideas. Um, because I think that however dire it sounds like in our conversation that things are, I actually have a lot of hope. I think I have a lot of hope for the future. I think that we can really change change these things and, and, and create places 
where we will feel and we will care about what we feel and, and that, that that'll transform people's lives. Let me dig deep into this feeling thing because my undergrad is in engineering. There's no feelings in engineering. <laughs> like there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in engineering. Like it just, it doesn't happen. My master's in planning degree is a little bit more, but it tends to come from the very a kind of like progressive lens or, you know, very far left lens of, of deep, deep empathy without a lot of like practical groundings, maybe let's say. And you said, you know, in architecture school, you got none of this uh, feeling, you know, emotion being important. I think of like the multiple public health threats that we deal with today. And let, let's just start with the one we've, we've, we're, we're hopefully ending living through the pandemic. This idea that we would collectively work together to stay at home, quarantine, isolate, help each other out, help the elderly, help the young, help the disadvantaged. There's a lot of like, you know, very practical social things that happiness and emotional well-being dig into. That's before you get into depression and anxiety and suicide and and even things like, you know, heart disease and heart attacks and, and other things that people are saying are related. It feels in a way like the, when I read your book and when I read your work, it feels, and then I look at the environment, it feels like we've created this neurotic soup to live in that's designed to like just poke humans with sticks every day as they, they traverse the environment. Am, am I way off or how, how should I think about this? And I guess related to that, what, what would be the benefits of toning that down a little bit, like taking that down a couple notches, that, that neuroticism? Now, what you're saying is absolutely right. I think what I'm worried about as I'm getting older here is people are just too alone here. In America, they say, I think you touched on that. I think it was 40% complaint of loneliness. And we're not designed, we have a social nature. We need to see each other. And to have to drive to a mall to see each other, that's not quite right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that we need to, in a way, it's a reorganization. I think why your work at Strong Towns is so important. We need to reorganize from the ground up. Just even the way we decide to build, how we, it's a lot of things that you are working with. We need to design for human health and for the next generation and for the fact we haven't really changed. Uh, we need to bring back some of the old village designs that weren't car centric. And what's so amazing to me though, is in Europe, you're seeing them take cars off streets. You know, in major cities like Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Paris, they have whole sections of the cities with no cars allowed except for delivery maybe before 10 in the morning. And that is accepted. And that invites pedestrianism, all ages are safe, um, it acknowledges who we are in a way. We need to do that. We need to do that here. Um, and and I, what I really think you can help us do too is this idea of evidence-based design. Unfortunately, what I learned as an architect is design was pro forma-based. It was based on the bankers making the big, you know, it, it didn't look at <laughs> Right. It was pro forma-based and the pro forma didn't have a line for emotional feeling. <laughs> or how, people, how safe was it to bike? It, the performer didn't include that. Right. So the fact that we enabled design for the first time really in centuries to become just performa based was stunning. You know what I'm, you know more Yeah, about. no, let me build on that, Justin, let me, because I, I think there's a, there's a performa that a developer will do to say, does a project cash flow? 
There's also a performa that a community would do to say, will this place endure? Will, is this a good long-term investment? Are the humans living in this habitat we're building going to prosper enough to actually sustain it? What does that math look like? I mean, what's the argument made there at, at maybe the community pro forma level? Well, I think that the biometrics are, are really a key part of that because those are um, very accessible, quantifiable metrics to indicate whether or not a, a place provides the kind of benefits that that we might hope for. And when you start to track people's eyes, um, when you start to look to see where they're fixating, where you measure their heart rate, you look at what kind of uh, facial expressions they, they generate when they, when they look at an image, you can do all this type of stuff before the buildings are built or before the development happens. Um, you know, like a pre-evaluation, like, is this going to provide uh, benefits for the people who are going to be living there, passing by, uh, visiting? Um, and, and, and these are, these are empirical questions that, that um, any community uh, can and should be answering. Actually, um, Anne has a great story about Catholic University of America, where, where they actually just did that uh, just recently, last week. Anne, do you want to tell that story? Uh, oh, right. Well, Catholic University of America, they're designing three new buildings on campus. So the students um, were showing the buildings and were showing the mock-ups of the buildings, I guess, in Photoshop. And then the students redesigned them based using the 3M visual attention software to show that if you put in a skylight, if you made the eating areas where students collected food, if you put red awnings on the side, you could show with the biometric software that people implicitly would find entering the new space more welcoming, less stressful, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, and it's just amazing. And then the architect saw that, it was Perkins Eastman, I think, and they said, oh, okay, we'll think of doing this. They didn't know that you can actually use this new technology to change design. But the fact that the school, it's an architecture school, is even starting to teach the students about to think this way, that's a, that's a huge change. That's huge. I, I remember Andres Duani saying, and I've heard him say this multiple times, this stuff sells. When the developers figure this out, they will do only this because yes. this sells huge people pay premium prices to live in great design places that actually make them feel good about their life and the world and the space around them. I mean, I feel like that's not even arguable, right? Right. But um, people need to know what Jan Gell, the famous um, Danish architect has said and planner, he said that Americans have very low expectations. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> and, and, and they don't realize we have such low expectations for the public realm. We don't realize so often like to make Times Square walkable, all the zoning in place made that impossible. So they had to do a, a summertime thing where they um, where, where, where they just did it for eight weeks or 10 weeks or something. And then everyone loved it. And then they changed all the zoning. They don't even realize what it's possible because right. people are so alone in their cars. Um, but in, in terms of Duane, I mean, I feel like him and, and the other kind of founders of Congress for New Urbanism, I mean, these people were visionaries and they were they were brave. Um, the irony is that what they were really building was had, had been built for hundreds of years before. I mean, it, you know, that's that's quite ironic. Um, but, you know, it made the cover of Time magazine, I remember at the time. I mean, like it was a really big deal that they were suggesting that we should build like people had been living for hundreds of years. And, and, and that's crazy. That's crazy. But here we are um, now we've had several decades of new urbanism and, and he's right. It sells and it sells 
And now we know why it sells. We, ha- we have the evidence. So it's great. I want to talk about your new nonprofit. Before we do that, I, I want to ask you one question. And I, I feel a certain... I feel like a certain obligation to ask this simply because there will be people who will dismiss this entire conversation because our former president uh, made some crazy executive order mandating something about classical buildings. And I quite frankly, don't even know what the executive order said, but I remember at the time sending this to Anne going, please like, don't help us. You know, like we're we're gonna win this fight. We don't need your help. Can we talk a little bit about this idea that uh, classical architecture equals fascism equals statism and nationalism? I, I feel like there's so much empathy and love and f- emotion and understanding in your work. It really hurt me, you know, on a personal level to see, you know, this kind of drug into this. Justin, you want to start with that? Yeah, so actually, I think a little bit of a context would be helpful. Um, you know, before getting into academia, I worked for the United States General Services Administration, the Public Building Service, which uh, at the, right, right, right before I started, they launched the, what they called the Design Excellence Program. And so the Design Excellence Program was in response to the federal government essentially saying for decades that we are going to build buildings as cheaply as possible. And we are going to go with the lowest bid. And, and we're usually, we're gonna to tend to use architects that have already been pre-cleared, which means generally people who are politically connected. So, so, so what they did at the beginning of the design excellence program is they, is they, they threw all that away. And they said, we are going to now prioritize good design. Of course, you know, their sense of good design was was equally subjective as the folks who uh, who crafted, you know, earlier federal regulations around around architecture. So so they they were it was just as subjective. They they recruited what they called the best architects of their generation, you know, Peter Eisenman and um, you know, the leading modernists of the era, and and so some pretty unattractive uh, buildings were built through that program and, and buildings that while we're lauded in, in the architecture circles, um, are, are not the kind of buildings that, that we've been talking about that, that, that evoke any kind of uh, positive feeling or, or, or comfort for, for visitors. So, so really what former President Trump and, and his, his group were really doing is they were responding to uh, what I do believe was a failed program, the Design Excellence Program. Um, and and they were, they're, they're trying to just fix that program. Um, I, I think it was probably not the best way to fix it. I think that imposing simply just saying classical is the answer and that's the end um, is not is not how, how it should be done. It should it should be more nuanced. I think uh, if they asked me, <laughs> I would say that the that um, uh, an executive order of those of that kind really should should really focus on evidence based and it should consider biometrics and it should consider. Um, the emotional experiences of people who are visiting those buildings, um, but not necessarily prescribe a, a certain style. I think that that's problematic. Right. Let me talk about your, your new nonprofit, the Human Architecture Planning Institute. Um, talk a little bit about what you want to do with this and, and why, it's, uh, why it's an initiative that, that you feel passionate about. Anne, you're going to start with that? Um, well, I think... You know, you always do things for reasons you don't understand. It's all subliminal, right? But I think in a way, I was a little bit angry (laughs) 
that my architectural education misled me. And I also think there's this opportunity if the people doing, you know, Raisin Brand understand the neuroscience, if the car companies understand it, if Apple is hiring PhD neuroscientists every week, what's going on here? There's a, a how can we help the public and how can we build a healthier public realm? I mean, I didn't even really, I lived in my, in my 20s, I lived in Paris for five years and I didn't even realize what a city could be until I lived there and I was car free and you didn't need a car and nobody cared that I didn't drive. <laughs> you know, It was just a different way of experiencing your world. So how can we make um, what we build more in keeping with nature, more sustainable? That's a whole other argument, the, the, the sustainability cost of building cars. <laughs> um, how can we make it more sustainable and, and more understand what we're part of, the amazing natural system we're a part of and build it and keeping, and then also get humans needs met the need for sociability, the need to bump into you as I walk across the street, the need to see someone's grandmother by mistake. I mean, that's the kind of things that normally happen. And it turns out humans need to have that happen. Even if it's not a deep conversation, just a, hey, that's a nice shirt you're wearing today. You know, that'll change how you feel about yourself, Chuck. So that, I guess that was the thing. How do we, this is a big idea. This is a big paradigm shift. How do we help promote the paradigm shift to 21st century architecture that's human-centric, evidence-based, and is a better fit for how humans function. I'm, I'm not sure I said that the best way. No, Just that's great. It, if people want to get a hold of, of either of you, if people want to get a hold of the, the Human Architecture Planning Institute, which I'll just say, happy, H-A-P-I. Thehappy.org. Thehappy.org. Happy.org? Thehappy. Thehappy. Okay. Go to thehappy.org. And if someone wants to follow your work, what would be the best place to do that? Well, I think um, there's annsussman.com and geneticsofdesign.com that has some of our updates. Um, I'm also giving a talk tomorrow. Oh, no, actually today <laughs> at the National <laughs> Arts Club <laughs> in New York City. Justin, if people wanted to follow you and your work, what's the, what's the best way to do that? I mean, you can certainly look at the Tufts University website. Um, I'm listed there. I have a website and um, I have my own podcast, Cognitive Urbanism, <laughs> which is a you know, different format than what you do here. Um, so happy to um, connect with people that way. Fantastic. The, the new book is Urban Experience and Design, Contemporary Perspectives on Improving the Public Realm. You should get that. Cognitive Architecture, the book that I have referenced many, many times is coming out with an update this summer. I would say, wait for the update, but you really should read this book now. So maybe read it now and then get the update again and reread it this summer. It is a, it is a fantastic book. It, it was, the first version was not cheap and I loved it so much that I, out of my own pocket, bought it for like a dozen people. I probably drove your, uh, your sales up quite a bit because it, it was such an important book. I think it was my number one book of the year, the year that I read it, because I do that list every year. So thank you for, for your work. Thank you for your patience with this engineer mind uh, that wants to be rational, trying to teach me uh, to be um, a little bit more emotional. I really appreciate all the work that you guys are doing. And I, I think it's some of the most important stuff out there. So thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. Justin, so nice to see you. Thanks for being here. And thank you. Uh, it's always nice to chat with you. Thanks, Chuck.
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.